It's a cool study, Chuck. They looked to see who was doing better, who was doing worse, and also what had changed. The United States did not rank at the top. We were not second. We were not in the top 20. We were in the bottom four. That doesn't mean we can't improve. We certainly can. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Sandbridge, Virginia, Everett, Washington, and Newcastle, Australia. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 72 of season 5, number 371 overall. We know way more now than we did 30 years ago in terms of what it means to eat healthy. But how much healthier then have our diets actually become? Well, a massive study now has that answer. And this study of 185 countries and thousands of people spanned three decades, and researchers were able to rank the quality of everyone's diet on a scale of 0 to 100, and they took a lot of things into consideration here. So where in the world, who in the world is eating the healthiest, and then globally, overall, how are we doing as well? You are about to find out today with Dr. Neil Barnard, who joined me on the exam room live. Also today, we will be opening up the doctor's mailbag, answering lots of questions sent in by you exam roomies, like Bill, who was wondering how he will know just how healthy his diet is. And Lance wants to know about living to be 100 years old. Is it all genetics or is it the food? We also have questions about iron and vegan diets. How will you know if you're getting enough there? And what to do when your blood pressure just frustratingly won't come down, but you think you're eating healthy. And then we have a question from Pat. And Pat has a freezer full of meat, but is ready to go vegan. So Pat is looking for some advice on what to do. Answers to all of those questions and a lot more coming up. Plus, I have details on a new study examining sugar-sweetened beverages and your risk of cancer. And those findings are definitely striking a bitter note with soda lovers around the world. But before we raise our health IQs today and start answering questions, I want to say a big thank you to the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund for making today's episode possible. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I-T-E-R, fund.org. Now, about our diets over the last 30 years. How are we doing? How are you doing? Let's find out with Dr. Neil Barnard on The Exam Room Live. Thanks for being here, my friend. Great to see you, Chuck. I want to talk about this study. This one came across my desk earlier this week, and I was like, man, this would be a great thing to bring up on the show. Um, it, it tracked the diets of people in 185 
different countries around the world. That's an enormous amount of work. So my question to you is, obviously, we've learned a lot over the last 30 years. How's everybody doing in terms of eating that healthy diet? Yeah, well, it's a cool study, Chuck. Um, they started in 1990. They looked again in 2018. They looked to see at each time point who was doing better, who was doing worse, and also what had changed. And I've got to tell you, the United States did not rank at the top. We were not second. We were not in the top 20. We were in the bottom four. And maybe, maybe for some reason, people may not be too surprised by that, given how much fast food and junk we, we're eating, you know. Uh, but at, at the bottom, uh, the U.S., Mexico, uh, Egypt, for some reason, and also Brazil. These are meaty countries, uh, unfortunately. But that, that doesn't mean we can't improve. We certainly can, but we're not doing well now. And, and one thing was really tragic in this study. Japan used to have a terrific diet. Back a generation ago, it was not a cheese fest at all. Dairy was not part of the diet. Not very much meat really either. And it was a lot of rice and vegetables. And Japan has descended and descended and descended since that time, unfortunately. Um, who's doing best? Actually, around the top of the list, uh, some surprises here. Uh, Vietnam, uh, a very largely plant-based diet. Iran scored well. Uh, India did as well, although India is a little mixed. Many, many more vegetarians in India. but dairy and meat are starting to really come come more in Indonesia also scored really, really well. So the theme here, uh, of course, is plant-based diets. Uh, people tend to do really pretty well. Um, also, if you break it down, uh, a couple more surprises, uh, things that may not be surprising too much. People who had better education tended to do better. Women tended to have healthier diets than men. So there's room for improvement all the way, all the way around. So the, the diets were scored on a scale of zero to 100. I'm assuming that zero was the diet that's probably multiple trips through the drive-through every day, lots of junk food and things like that. The 100 score, much closer to that plant-based, that whole food plant-based diet. Um, how exactly did they break down these rankings? I mean, that's a, that's a generic assumption on my part, but what, what did uh, the researchers actually do here? Yeah, well, actually, you're right, Chuck. Um, they used an instrument that's called the Alternate Healthy Eating Index. And this was developed by Harvard University a number of years ago. And in fact, we've used it here to rank the health, healthfulness of our studies as well. Um, and it's, it's imperfect. It does rate things well that you would agree with. People who eat more fruits, more vegetables, more beans, more whole grains, they're going to do better. And the reason they included them is that they based the alternate healthy eating index on studies where people tend to live longer and, and avoid chronic illnesses. Um, they also said that if you had more sugar-sweetened beverages, more red meat, more processed meat, they would rate you down. Um, however, they thought that uh, fish eaters, generally speaking, were better than people who ate other meats. So they actually thought of fish as a positive. Um, whereas, let's say you're on a completely plant-based diet, adding fish is going to push you in sort of the wrong direction. So it's not a perfect uh, rating system, but it's probably about as good as we have. I want to actually see if I can uh, share my screen really quickly and pull up um, a particular slide that was uh, 
in the study. Here it is right here. Uh, this is looking at uh, the average score uh, over the course of time, right? And so you start um, on the left-hand side with birth and you see that, you know, at birth, the score is a little bit high, but then as you, as you get into childhood, you see this big, 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 big dip there. And to me, Dr. Barnard, what that tells me is that we're really kind of digging a hole for ourselves in terms of our health at an early age. How do we kind of rectify this so we don't have that big U-shaped curve here and we just kind of keep it steady and healthy across the board? Part of it has been what I'm going to call our own cultural naivety. The idea is you're a kid, nothing can hurt you in the food department. So have all the ice cream and string cheese that you want to because you couldn't have a heart attack. You won't have cancer when you're four or five years old. But we've learned two things. Number one, the uh, beginnings of heart disease do start in early childhood. You can start seeing artery changes. You're not gonna have a heart attack at that age, but the arteries start to get damaged all life long. The other thing, and perhaps even more important, is that when kids are raised on this, you might call it an indulgent or permissive diet or something where they're eating a lot of uh, junk food, um, cheese, meat, chicken uh, nuggets, and that kind of stuff, um, they acquire a taste for that. And so then fast forward, the guy's 45 years old, he's at a high risk for heart disease. And he says, well, gee, I'm really having trouble giving up these foods. Had he been raised with parents who knew what vegan foods were and really helped him, um, the scenario would be really completely different. And as you see in these, in these curves, um, that the things really dip in early childhood, and then you kind of fight your way back toward a somewhat healthier diet in adulthood. But a lot of people really don't quite get there. And here's the, th the, the steepest decline uh, comes from high income countries, which uh, I guess is going to include us here in the, in the US. I mean, you look at really do start, I mean, relatively high there, close to 60 out of 100. And then it's just you fall off of that cliff until you bottom out around 15, 16, right before you head out to college. What do you think it is about high income countries? And actually, we can keep it specific here to the US. What is it here specifically that really we start to see those diets just tank so rapidly? Because individuals have the ability to buy burgers, to buy fish sandwiches, to buy chicken sandwiches and, and chicken and so forth. And the government has the money to subsidize those same products. So that's really the issue. If you looked at, say, China a generation ago, economically, um, there was more deprivation than there is today. And so what did people eat? They could eat rice and vegetables. Meat was relatively expensive, so there wasn't much of it in the diet. There was not really much dairy. As China has become wealthier, particularly in the past oh, decade or 15 years, you've seen great increases in meat consumption and huge increases in cardiovascular disease and other kinds of problems. So wealth is not necessarily your friend. Uh, if it's driving bad eating habits. All right. Well, let's talk about those eating habits. You, you used the word naivety a little bit earlier in the show. And one of the uh, misnomers that I've heard is that if somebody's eating an unhealthy diet that has a ton of sodium in it, then it's easy for somebody to flush that sodium out of their system and basically offset its effects if they drink a bunch of water. Is there any truth that you know of to that idea? Um, I think the, the cheese manufacturers wish there were, <laughs> they're, they're done with the sodium at the factory, hoping you can wash it out with your Dr. Pepper. Um, no, uh, you, you don't want to be taking a huge amount of sodium. Now that said, um, 
your body does use a little bit of sodium. It's a natural electrolyte. You need it. Um, and there are traces of it in foods, but there is a huge amount um, in processed foods. Uh, people think of potato chips and French fries, but I mentioned cheese because ounce per ounce cheese, uh, especially the processed cheeses like Velveeta, they have about four times the, the uh, sodium content compared to something like potato chips. All right. And let's get some practical tips so we can try to get ourselves close as close as possible to that 100 number. Um, just for somebody who really knows nothing about healthy eating, uh, one of the first questions they may ask is how many servings of fruits and vegetables per day should they be aiming to eat? Oh, great question. I think the real issue is to make sure you have them. Make sure that you have fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes or beans have all four of them, have them part of your routine. And the reason I'm going to put it that way, as opposed to specific numbers of servings, is different people will interpret it different ways and they all seem to do well. For example, let's say I'm from an Asian tradition. Many of the Asian countries really favor a diet that's a little lighter on fruit, but, but pretty big on grains. It might be rice or it might be other grains. On the other hand, let's say I'm in a tropical area and uh, fruit just calls my name. People in both directions, say a more grain-based diet or a more fruit-based diet, are both going to do fine. Why? Because there's no cholesterol in any of them. There's no animal fat. There's virtually no saturated fat in any of them. Um, and you can have a vitamin-rich diet either way. So my rule of thumb is make sure all four fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, or beans are, are in your diet. And you can kind of pick your proportion and you can vary it. You might um, eat a little more grains and beans in the winter when it's cold. And then in the summertime, you find your, yourself gravitating more toward mangoes and papayas and apples and bananas and lighter fare. You can choose. And so the other question that I'm sure comes up a lot is the question of moderation, everything in moderation, including moderation. So what would your <laughs> advice be to somebody who's like, well, I only have soda, uh, you know, just a couple of days a week. Um, I try to minimize my Pringles binges to one or two days a week as well, only do the drive-through one day a week. Moderation when it comes to indulging with your diet, what would your advice there be? Yeah, um, everything in moderation is a useful expression for healthy things. So let's say, let's say I've got an eight-year-old daughter and she likes playing the violin. And so she's practicing and practicing and practicing. And after about three or four hours, you say, don't you have some schoolwork or wouldn't you like to come down to dinner? She says, no, I'm just killing it on the violin. Wait, stop. You need a moderate. Okay. Let's say um, she likes broccoli, nothing but broccoli. You should have other things. So moderation in good things is fine. But let's say my eight-year-old daughter comes in and says, dad, um, I'm going to smoke just one cigarette or maybe two today because it's moderate. Say, no, it's, it's bad for you. you. Don't have any. How about a line of cocaine? No, this is not good. So moderation does not apply to things that are harmful to your body. And that's really important to remember. All things in moderation, yes, if they are healthful things, but for, for things that steer you in the wrong direction, A, moderate amounts of these things can be harmful in and of themselves. B, they reawaken that desire for it. Let's, let's say you had diabetes, serious weight problem, whatever, and you manage to break free from cheese and meat and all these things. But if you thought, well, maybe moderation, I could have it once a week or once a month. Uh, is that gonna hurt me? Maybe not, but it reawakens the desire. It kicks that addiction back in. It makes your struggle a bigger issue than just saying goodbye. 
Um, when I was a medical student um, and an early resident, I used to smoke cigarettes. Yes, it's true. Um, like all the medical students, we were under stress and we thought, I know these cause cancer, but I'll quit when I'm not under stress. We all realized it was much easier to not smoke at all. Just quit, throw them away than it was to try to smoke in moderation because you know certain things that are addictive you just you, you, it's easier to put a fence between you and that thing that wants to hurt you you know i think that there are a lot of ex smokers uh, out there i myself i'm i'm one as well um obviously now the pendulum has swung very much in the other direction in terms of not just a healthier lifestyle but healthier diet as well so um in terms of how much concern we should have as ex smokers um I, Given the fact that we're leading a completely different life at this point, you know, how worried should we be as far as the damage that's already been done from from smoking? Yeah, I mean, what you did to yourself. Yeah, um, this is a great question, and this is something that has been been studied. Um, your risk of developing, well, first of all, lung cancer. There are also other forms of cancer that that uh, it contributes to, as well as cardiovascular disease. Tobacco does all those things. Your risk of those problems starts to diminish as soon as you crush that cigarette out. And then if you light up again, it starts going back up. But when, as soon as you stop, your risk starts to diminish, but it doesn't go down to a non-smokers level for some of these things for well over a decade or more. So there are people who have quit smoking. 15 years later, they've developed lung cancer. So what that means is you want to quit smoking now. Don't wait <laughs> for a more convenient time. Um, and you also want to do all the things that we know are helpful. You want to be on a healthy diet, you want to exercise, um, and you want to avoid other toxic exposures too. All right. Ante Rolf is a uh, teacher and uh, the piqued the curiosity with talking about the study there, especially uh, talking about the younger demographic, the kids here. Uh, this is a question that came in at 1207. Uh, Ante says that uh, they allow their students who are about 10 to 12 years old to snack on fruits and nuts and vegetables during class. The kids love it, but there is one parent, Dr. Barnard, who's concerned because they think that it promotes snacking and thus weight gain. What advice can you give Ante as far as what they may want to say to this parent? Uh, well, the good thing is that all those snacks are healthy, healthy snacks. And I couldn't quite tell from the question if, if they can snack totally whenever they want to or if it's more regular times. Um, they're, they're different people uh, differ on this. Some people will say um, if it's totally healthy foods and the child is hungry and really can't concentrate, they eat a banana, they eat an apple. This will not hurt them. This will allow them to get back to reading and feeling good. Others will say, let's have orderly eating habits so that we're, we're having food at certain times and not at other times, kind of for behavioral reasons. And I don't really have a way to arbitrate between those, those two. But the good news is that nothing on that list was the things that some people want to push in front of kids using schools to market those little cartons of milk um, and uh, meat products and that kind of thing. Um, industry has unfortunately used the school lunch program as a dumping ground for really unhealthy foods. And if we can break away from that and have healthy things there, that has got us really a long way toward healthier kids. 
All right. Reminder, the doctor's mailbag is now open. So if there's a question you have for Dr. Barnard, go ahead and post that in the comments or in the chat. You can also send them to me anytime on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Chuck Carroll, WLC. I uh, want to say a quick hello to uh, Eustachio, who's checking in today from Italy. Very cool. Also want to say hi to Roller Girl, Leslie, Gail, uh, Cephas, Josh, Edith. They're all hanging out with us live here today. The exam room is representing. Um, Dr. Barnard, let's take a question here from John, who was wondering about sugar from fruit and whether that may actually slow the weight loss process. Oh, great question. You know, a lot of people imagine that it will because they'll say, they'll say sugar, it's got calories, it's going uh, to fill me up with empty calories, that kind of thing. No, actually the opposite is true uh, for a couple of reasons. The sugar then in fruit, just like sugar in any form, has four calories per gram. And this is important. You should tattoo this on your forearm because this is a big number or an important number, I should say. Uh, all natural fruit sugars and even table sugar have four calories per gram. The reason I'm emphasizing that is fat, whether it's beef fat, chicken fat, or even fryer grease that went into a French fry, the fat has nine calories per gram. So that means if you eat a gram of some cheese, you're getting a lot of calories. If you eat a gram of a fruit, you're getting very few calories. So the more fruit you have, the better you're going to do. Plus, let's say I have a peach or an apple or a pear or an orange. There's some sweetness in there. There's a lot of water in there that has effective, I mean, has zero calories. And then there's a lot of fiber in there that fills you up with almost no calories too. So people who add more fruit to their diet, especially if that pushes the Snickers off, um, they're going to lose weight really very effectively. I want to say a quick hello to Judith, uh, who's watching us live all the way in Australia. Victoria, Australia says that uh, Judith went uh, vegan there three years ago. Feels tremendously better. So thanks for hanging out today, Judith, uh, and represent from Australia. It is, uh, it's got to be the middle of the night there, wouldn't you think? I, I don't know what time it is, but that's dedication uh, if you're checking in, taking care of your health so late. Um, what better time to listen to the exam room, Chuck, than the middle of the night? Yeah, examining nutrition in the wee hours of the morning, my friend. Uh, well, that's when people might be going to the refrigerator and probably you might have given them some clues about what they should really be doing. There you go. There you go. Uh, let us be the voice of reason. All right, let's take a question from Chris. Uh, oh man, this is such a good one. Chris is looking for some advice, Dr. Barnard, about transitioning to a plant-based diet coming off of a low-carb, high-fat diet. Oh, wow. Well, um, so many people have gotten into the low carb trap where they've gotten this idea in their head uh, that, that carbohydrates are the problem. So they're afraid of looking at a grain of rice or they think that a banana is going to hurt them. And it, it's really an unfortunate thing. And for some people, um, those ideas are hard to get rid of. And it's really important, number one, to learn about who is the slimmest. People who eat abundant plant foods are by far the slimmest and, and stay that way long term compared to people um, who are yo-yoing up and down on, on ketogenic diets and that kind of thing. Um, so everybody does this in their own way. But what I would suggest you do is bring these four foods back into your diet. The fruit's been gone. Bring it back and don't have any limit to it. Bring in the beans. Bring in whole grains. That's better than, say, white rice. Brown rice is going to be a better choice. And vegetables. You're already okay with vegetables because most people on keto diets aren't too worried about broccoli and asparagus and that kind of thing. As you bring them back in, at some point, 
take a short period of time, like three weeks, and during that three-week period, do it all vegan, all the time, and keep the oils really low, including those oils that people told you must be perfectly uh, healthy, you know, like uh, olive oil, that kind of thing. Keep them low, and what you're going to discover is that your body transitions into this, and the, the weight control becomes automatic, despite the fact that you're having the high carbohydrate foods that really taste good. You're able to eat fruit without worry. You're able to eat breads and, and rice and things like that without being so worried about it. So jump in, see what happens. All right. This next question may be one of my favorites ever. Uh, Pat needs some advice. You see, Pat has a freezer that is just stocked with hundreds of dollars worth of meat, but Pat is also ready to take the vegan plunge. But they don't know what to do because they've got this whole freezer full of meat. They're looking for some advice. So what would you say that Pat does with this hundreds of dollars worth of meat that's in their freezer and they're ready to go vegan? What should be Pat? Uh, what should Pat be doing here, Dr. Barnard? Okay. I can hear your frugalness coming in there saying, I don't want to waste all that food that I bought. And wouldn't it be a, a good thing to eat that first and then go vegan. Well, if your closet was filled with cartons of cigarettes that you bought on sale, you think, well, maybe I'll quit smoking once I've smoked through all that. Uh -uh, don't know. Don't do that. The meat is going to hurt you. What do you do instead? Um, and you don't want to throw it away because it seems like it's got some value. It does have value. You know who, who it's going to help? Your local animal shelter. Pack it all up. Let them know that you're coming and say, I'd like to give you something that's bad for people but really good for cats <laughs> and give all your meat to them because they are not primates. They are carnivores and they're not going to have a heart attack no matter how much meat they eat. We have a lot of questions today about soy for some reason. I don't know if soy is in the headlines, but uh, we're going to, we're going to make it, uh, we're going to have a conversation about it here today. Uh, Hushik at 1208 is wondering whether soy is bad for the thyroid. Ah, great question. No, soy is not bad for the thyroid gland. Um, people in the past, imagine that soy would um, interfere with thyroid production. Um, but soy, soy like any food, doesn't not just soy, but any food, if you are on thyroid medication, like Synthroid, don't eat anything at the time you take your medicine because it's, you're not going to absorb your medicine very well. Food interferes with that, soy big time. So uh, don't have any food maybe a half hour before you take your dose to up to four hours after. You want that medicine to get into your bloodstream to do some good. Um, but after that, soy is no problem at all. And soy doesn't, the best evidence we have suggests that soy does not bring on hypo or hyperthyroidism. Antonella at 1212, more on soy. Uh, Antonella is wondering whether you should avoid soy if you have fibroids and or endometriosis. I would probably increase the soy uh, in those cases. We don't have good evidence really um, one way or the other for endometriosis specifically, but the, the reason that I'm giving you that answer is way back when people discovered that soy isoflavones, these are the natural compounds in the soy, isoflavones attached to estrogen receptors. And so that made people think, okay, anything that drives estrogen is going to increase my risk of breast cancer or other kinds of cancer. And fibroids are estrogen dependent too, so they might make everything worse. The results came in for breast cancer. And it turned out that people eating the most soy actually had a whole lot less breast cancer risk. And then people realized why, that there are actually two kinds of estrogen receptors, alpha 
and beta. And the alpha receptor is like a, like a, the gas pedal in your car. If you put your foot on the, on the gas pedal, it goes faster. That's your alpha receptor. But right next to it is your brake. That's like the beta receptor. Your foot goes there, everything stops. So the soy isoflavones preferentially attach not to the alpha receptor. They're not pushing the gas. They apply, they, they uh, attach preferentially to the beta receptor. So we imagine that, it, that it's probably also beneficial for fibroids, but we don't really have a good study on that. Uh, but fibroids, uh, for people who don't know what we're talking about, your uterine lining is the endometrium and right under it is a muscle layer like a steel band in a tire. And that muscle layer gets these little knots in it. They can be small or they can be big like a golf ball or bigger than that. And that is a fibroid. Uh, estrogen drives them. So after menopause, they tend to go away kind of slowly. Uh, some have suggested that a diet that's plant-based, which will typically reduce estrogens, would be a good part of the treatment. I think that's true, but, but the effect is, is pretty slow. And um, soy is probably going to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. You just mentioned menopause and Martina is wondering if we can dive a little bit deeper into that. This question comes to us at 1212. Uh, says, uh, I became vegan in February. How can I get my menopause under control or make it go away altogether? Okay. Um, if by that you mean that you're having symptoms like hot flashes, um, that was something that, that led me to, to, to write my book, Your Body in Balance. Um, and uh, we talked a little bit about that here, but let, let me uh, come back to it a little bit. Um, we learned that three diet changes can really tackle hot flashes. And I'm, I'm talking about making them go away by 85, 90%, something like that. Um, and here's what the three are. Number one, plant-based diet. You're probably already doing that. Great. Um, if you're not, start there. No animal products at all. Step two, keep oils really low. For some people following a plant-based diet, they're still cooking oil, salad oils, and oily foods like nuts and avocados. For now, even, those, even though those are healthier than animal fats, for now as a test, set those aside. Number three, soybeans. Have a half a cup of cooked soybeans every day. You can go online, you go on Amazon or something, you'll see um, non-GMO soybeans like Laura brand or others. Um, you'll see um, pre-toasted soybeans called toasteds, and, and, or you can toast them yourself. Have a half a cup a day, just cook them up in your Instant Pot and, and have a half, a half a cup per day. And what you'll discover, for some people within the first week, their hot flashes are knocked out. For most people, it takes a little longer, maybe six, seven, eight weeks. But the vast majority of people noticed a huge reduction in the moderate to severe hot flashes, the ones that wake you up at night and make you feel crazy. Um, and other physical symptoms improve too. Headaches, uh, nervousness, even sexual symptoms tend to improve. So three steps, no animal products, zero. Keep oils really low and have a half a cup of cooked soybeans every day. And to commit yourself to it, just say, well, I'm not making a long-term commitment. I just want to see if this will work. Treat it like medicine. Do this for, uh, our, our studies have gone on for 12 weeks. For most people, your, your improvement is way before that. All right, let's pivot around here, do a little bit of a grab bag here and talk about iron. We haven't talked about iron in a little while on the show here. Adina is wondering how somebody with anemia might still be able to get enough iron in their diet if they're eating a whole food plant-based diet. Okay, well, great question. Um, first of all, um, there are different kinds of anemia. 
And I'm sure you've done this, Adina, but if not, make sure your doctor provides the diagnosis because there are different reasons why you would have too few red blood cells. And that's what anemia is. If it's iron deficiency anemia, the doctor's first step is not to say, what can you eat that's got more iron in it? The first step is the doctor's gonna say, are you losing iron? So you're not gonna like this, but the doctor's gonna say, go get a colonoscopy. I wanna see if you're bleeding internally in some way. The doctor will say, are your periods extra heavy? Or are you exercising like crazy? Are you training for a triathlon? Sometimes people run a little bit low in iron from those reasons. Okay, let's assume that you've, you've taken care of all those things and you're just really low in iron. Do not do the 1950s thing. Um, liver, red meat, they do have iron and it's highly absorbable and it comes along with cholesterol, saturated fat, E. coli, salmonella, all kinds of stuff you do, you know, you don't want. Um, there's plenty of iron in green vegetables, which is actually where the cow got it. Cows don't make the iron that's in their liver. They ate it in grass or, or other plants. And so green vegetables have lots of iron in them. Uh, make sure that they're part of your diet. Some people will also add vitamin C rich foods uh, to make sure that the iron is really more absorbable. And then your doctor will retest you. Um, oh, oh, by the way, one thing I forgot to mention, no milk, no dairy. If you have that glass of milk with your meal, your iron absorption is cut by half. So don't do that. Um, your doctor will retest you. In a rare case, the doctor will recommend iron supplementation, but most people don't need that. All right, let's uh, grab a few more with the time that we have remaining. Uh, Riri has an interesting one. Not the first time that we've gotten this question, but uh, I think that the, it, it's worth talking about again. Riri adopted the plant-based diet, saw dramatic improvements nearly across the board, except with their blood pressure, which remains stubbornly high. So for somebody who has that high blood pressure, and it just seems like no matter what they do, it's just not wanting to come down. What else might they try? There are some folks where their blood pressure just, just does end up being kind of high. But before we conclude that, let's do a couple of things. Uh, number one, totally vegan diet. Sounds like you're doing that. That's great. Uh, you already know about sodium. The effect is not huge. Uh, when you really limit sodium, you go down to maybe two grams per day, which is, that means you're reading labels. You're not having the high sodium snack foods. Um, but that'll knock maybe four or five uh, points off your blood uh, blood pressure. It's, it's not a huge effect, but it's worth worth grabbing. Uh, number three, make sure you're not eating things like coconut oil and palm oil. And for anybody, I don't care what your health issue is, throw those foods in the trash. Coconut oil and palm oil are high in saturated fat. The saturated fat doesn't just raise your cholesterol, it raises your blood viscosity. It makes your blood thick. And it's hard for your heart to push that thick blood down through the artery so your blood pressure goes up and the artery walls get stiffer. So no coconut oil, no palm oil, keep oils in general low. So let's say we've done all these things. Um, I'm totally vegan, I'm uh, low in sodium, and I'm avoiding coconut oil. If you're avoiding all fats, your body weight starts to come down, and this, as, as weight comes down over time, blood pressure will go down, 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 down. And the last piece of this puzzle is when people exercise, so many things change your pulse comes down because your heart is getting healthier and stronger and it doesn't have to beat so much. Your blood pressure starts to come down. Everything's going in the right direction. If you've done all of those things and you're working with your doctor, if it's still high, then you've got to look at whether you need to be on medication. The vast majority of people do not. These lifestyle 
uh, steps will work for them. But there are cases where people have a persistently high blood pressure, despite uh, really taking good care of themselves. And let's look at the opposite end of the spectrum. Take a question from Vinu, who was wondering what the safest way is to get off of blood pressure medication. Okay, I would do the things that I mentioned, but uh, different medicines are different. Let's say you have a high cholesterol. Your doctor could say, if you want to stop your cholesterol medication for two or three months and we'll see how you do, you can do that. That medication vacation is all right because a high cholesterol level over a short period of time won't hurt you. With blood pressure, that is not the case. If you've got high blood pressure and, and you're using medicine now to bring it down, your doctor is not going to and, and, and should not say, ah, just go ahead and stop it. Let's see if diet will, do, will help you. What, you what has to happen is the doctor watches your blood pressure as you're improving your diet, as, as you are implementing a vegan diet, low oil, exercising, avoiding the bad fats, that kind of stuff, and avoiding excess sodium. As those things kick in and your weight comes down, your, your doctor will reduce and eliminate the blood pressure medicines when and if the time is right, because a peak in blood pressure can mean you have a stroke, or it can mean you are hurting your kidneys and doctors don't want that to happen, and, and they're right. All right, Carrie at 1232. Next to last question uh, says, when you say to keep the oils low, exactly how much oil are you talking about? Okay, for different people, it's a little bit different. Um, as a general rule, let's say a person is trying to conquer menopausal symptoms. You're trying to knock out diabetes. You're trying to lose weight. What I would do is I would have only the oils that are naturally in vegetables, fruits, and whole grains and beans, which is not much. Um, if you have a sprig of broccoli, there are traces of natural oils that the body actually needs. But I would, it, you don't have to count. You eat whole grains and vegetables and fruits, legumes, and avoid added oils when you're cooking. Don't have them at all. Learn how to cook in a nonstick pan or saute in vegetable broth or steamed vegetables, whatever. Um, if you are um, looking at food labels on, say, a, a packaged food, uh, the packaged food should be vegan, but the total fat should be less than three grams per serving. That's the number that we use in our research studies when people are trying to reverse diabetes or knock out their hot flashes. And then for now, don't have nuts, seeds, avocados at all. If on the other hand, you're not trying to tackle a health problem and you're healthy and slim and things are okay, some people make a pretty good, good case for having about an ounce of nuts per day. Why? Because nuts have some vitamin E in them. Um, and of course, nuts are addictive. So you want to limit it to maybe about an ounce, which is one small, handful per day. So for people who are really trying to knock off the weight, we don't do that. But, but for a person who's doing fine and they want to have some nuts, I, I think it's perfectly okay. All right. A couple more quick hellos before we wrap up. Uh, Shantai is checking in from South Africa today. Uh, Josh says, uh, Dr. Barnard, that we actually woke him up because he got a notification on his phone that the show was live. So I think that's a pretty healthy way to wake up. <laughs> Not too bad. It um, certainly is. And then Judith uh, down in Australia gave us an update. Uh, as we record this, it's about 12, almost 12.40 p.m. here on the east coast of the U.S. For Judith, it's almost 2.40 in the morning there. So really middle of the night, getting a dose of all kinds of healthy in the wee hours. Um, final question is a great one. And I uh, had Dan Butner on the show last year, and he talked uh, a lot about living to 100 and the blue zones. And Lance has this question to take us home today, Dr. Barnard. Uh, do centenarians have a genetic advantage or might a lot more of us live to see 100 if we lived a healthier lifestyle and ate a healthier diet? 
Okay, well, Chuck, uh, you, you mentioned Dan Butner, who's done some brilliant work with this. Uh, working with National Geographic, he took a world map and he marked out the countries that had the most centenarians and the people who lived to be 100. And he marked them in blue, which is why they're called the blue zones. And there are genetic factors that affect your health. There, there, there are. I mean, some people have more genetic protection uh, against, say, cancer because their immune defenses are better. Some people have more vulnerabilities. However, what made the blue zone stand out was not genes at all. It was certain specific lifestyle factors. And number one was food. Um, in many cases, these were folks who didn't have a lot of economic means. So they tended to eat pretty simple foods, uh, plant-based foods pretty much across the board. Um, this is Okinawa uh, was number one. And in Okinawa, right at the bottom of Japan, their number one food, sweet potatoes. It's more than half their calories from sweet potatoes. Um, and of course, that's changing now as McDonald's is moving in. But this was pretty much the, the way across, all across the board. These were also places where people tended to exercise more. They had more of a sense of community as well. And the sense of community, I don't think directly affects longevity. But if you have a sense of community, that means that people know if you're eating bad food. And so they help you to stay more on the straight and narrow food-wise and, and health-wise. Yeah, man, those nosy neighbors, man, they can keep you honest, <laughs> can't they? My goodness. If that's what it takes to live to 100, let me tell you something. Everybody on this block is going to be 100, no question about it. Coming up on the next episode of The Exam Room Live, our old friend Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be back on the hot seat. That's coming up Wednesday, September 28th. He'll be here that day to raise our health IQs beginning at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. So set a reminder right now to join us that day on YouTube or on Facebook. Links to both pages can be found in the episode notes. Albany, New York. I am headed your way very soon for two great events. September 30th, how much fun is this? I'm going to be emceeing a comedy show with the vegan comedian Mike Kaplan at Cohos Music Hall. It'll be great to be able to catch up with him. And then just a couple of days later, the Albany Veg Fest at the Albany Capital Center. Dr. T. Colin Campbell also will be speaking there. I'm going to be taking the stage at 11.15 to share my story with you there, overcoming food addiction and how eating a plant-based diet is really helping me keep this weight off now for so many years and well into the future. Don't have to worry about putting that weight back on. So I'm hitting the stage at 11.15 and then my plan is to hang around and hope to meet some of you guys. A lot of the exam roomies, I'm going to be bringing my old 66-inch waist pants. So if you want to snap a picture with those bad boys, you can absolutely do that as well. So that's coming up October 2nd, the Albany Veg Fest at the Albany Capital Center. And details and ticket information for both events right now can be found in the episode notes. Let's switch gears now. Soda lovers' affection for the fizzy drink would do well to go flat. A new study is warning millions that that love could be putting them at risk for cancer. And sips of other sugary beverages are also having the same effect. Details now from the exam room news desk. On any given day, about half of all adults and more than 6 out of 10 children will guzzle one down. 
sugar-sweetened beverages that satisfy your thirst and your sweet tooth. And that could be a major problem for your health. A large-scale study led by the American Cancer Society finds drinking two or more sugar-sweetened beverages a day can significantly increase your risk of developing cancer. And that includes everything from soda to supposedly healthier options like fruit and sports drinks that contain added sugar. The findings show the two-a-day habit is associated with increased cases of obesity-related cancers, as well as dying specifically from colorectal and kidney cancers. The news? Also not so sweet for those who opt for the artificially sweetened and often zero-calorie options. The study shows they too can increase the risk of pancreatic cancer, though researchers say further study on that connection is still needed. A link to the study is in the episode notes. Today's episode of The Exam Room Live has been powered by the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund. The Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund supports organizations like the Physicians Committee that carry on Greg's love for animals by promoting plant-based health and working to end animal abuse while emphasizing programs that promote systemic change and also benefit people. You can visit the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund online at GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory Ryder, R-E-I, T-E-R fund.org. And thank you again, Allison, and everyone for carrying on such an incredible legacy. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Neil Barnard for being here and raising our health IQs about diets on a global scale. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>